From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Dorothy Day is among the most inspiring and challenging American Catholics of the 20th century. As the Jesuit peace activist Daniel Berrigan said, Dorothy lived as if the truth were true. There were no half measures with her. Dorothy co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement and put her faith into action in pursuit of justice with so much passion and heart that she's now up for canonization in the church. She could be St. Dorothy Day. Late last year, the Archdiocese of New York packed up hundreds of pounds of materials in support of her cause. The packages contain her published and unpublished writings, transcripts of interviews with people who knew her. There are books about her and a couple of DVDs of movies about her. Just an incredible volume of stuff. And the person in charge of collecting and organizing all this material is my guest today. His name is Jeff Corgan, and he has been involved in social justice work in the church for decades. For the past seven years, he has been learning about Dorothy and preparing all of these documents for the Vatican. Officials over there will look through it all and study to see if Dorothy might take the next step toward canonization. I wanted to know more about how a saint is made, so I asked Jeff to explain the process and share highlights from what he learned on his journey with Dorothy and those who knew her. It was a fascinating look behind the curtain. The process of canonization is extremely complex, which I guess isn't that surprising for the Catholic Church. Even better than learning about the process in this conversation, though, was getting to hear Jeff talk about Dorothy and her witness and how his work toward her cause changed him. If you learn about Dorothy Day and then go back to living your life just as you had it before, you're missing the point. Her radical commitment to the gospel and to those living in poverty invite all of us to discern how we can serve the Lord by working for peace and justice. You can subscribe to AMBG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Jeff Corgan, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's nice to chat after a long time. We've been friends for a long time, but it's been a while. And um, so right at the end of 2021, I saw the news that um, the exciting Catholic news that the the cause for sainthood for the great American Catholic Dorothy Day, uh, the work that had been done here in the States preparing for that cause was wrapping up and these materials, a lot of materials were being sent to Rome uh, where they'll continue uh you know, investigating. And um, so like, oh, that's cool. I knew that you were involved in that. And I knew you, but we first talked about that like five, six more years ago, a long time ago when you were first getting started with that work. So it's like, oh, I got to call up Jeff. I got to find out more. What goes into making someone a saint in the Catholic church? And very few people would have an, an insight into that the way you would. So it's, it's complex. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff happening. Well, it, it's, it's complex. It involves several different stages uh, and uh, people often ask me, well, how long is it going to take to make Dorothy a saint? I say, you know, sometime between five and 500 years. <laughs> we can be confident uh, that within 500. Um, so like just because the process has started doesn't mean, yeah, again, we, we really have no idea, right? Yeah, it starts with a local bishop uh, looks at the life of someone who died in that diocese. It's not 
where they were born. It's where mm-hmm. they died. And so the local bishop, who at the time was John Cardinal O'Connor, began having conversations on Dorothy's 100th birthday with people who knew knew her. And the whole question for the early stages, did she live a life of heroic virtue? That's a way of really simplifying the stages that lead up to looking for miracles. Sure. Uh, and for for Dorothy, you know, the the question among the, the, the he asked of the people, you know, did she live a life of heroic virtue? Is this something that would be welcomed by people who knew her? Um, is this something that uh, we can work together on? And the answer was a resounding uh, yes. And we'll we'll come back to the people out there who don't think she should be a saint, who also love her. Um, but we we uh, began this process uh, back in the year uh, 2000 when Cardinal O'Connor got permission from Pope John Paul II to begin uh, the diocese archdiocesan inquiry into the life and virtues of Dorothy Day, servant of God. So when the Pope gave that permission. He gave her the title Servant of God. So whenever you see that after someone's name, it means they're a candidate. So let's go back to the the life of this Servant of God before we get too far. I think Dorothy Day is someone whose name a lot of people know, especially in, in Catholic circles. Maybe just know a little bit about her. I think maybe her profile was raised in the consciousness like uh, back in 2015 when Pope Francis came to the U.S. and, and talked about her in the halls of Congress and the Capitol building is one of kind of four uh, important Americans and uh, kind of lifted her up alongside Martin Luther King and, and Thomas Merton and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so four great I, Americans four great. Yeah. Yeah. No, certainly. So I, so maybe like what, when people ask you about her, when they're learning about the, the process, what is, what are some of the things you want to tell them about her? What's your uh, elevator pitch? Well, one of the, one of the guilds um, taglines is a saint for our times. She was uh, a, it was a 20th century life she lived. She was born in 1897 and died in 1980. So it's a very, it's a very 20th century life, but she was ahead of her time in many ways. So people often uh, relate to her really well today. She was a person who was drawn into the social justice movements of her time in a very radical way. You know, she, she hung out with anarchists and socialists and, they didn't have communists back in the early 20th century because the, um, the, uh, the Communist Party didn't even exist. So she uh, was a uh, 20th century uh, activist from early on. At the age of 19, she went to work for a socialist paper in the uh, New York area called the New York Call. And then due to a sexual harassment incident, she moved on from that to the masses, which if any of your listeners have uh, watched the movie Reds, those were the people she was hanging out with, you know, the Warren Beatty character and and the whole gang there. Uh, She uh, got to know all of them. She was kind of a uh, editorial assistant at first. And then her boss called her in just before the newspaper was shut down by the government for being seditious. Uh, and for opposing World War One, and said, Dorothy, I think we're all going to be arrested except for you. So I'd like you to get out the paper. So she had this real kind of um, immersion into the radical life of the early 20th century. But she also had many religious questions that hounded her. 
and uh, in in a sense of the hound of heaven, the 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 poem. And she and Eugene O'Neill had many conversations about that poem. And she, um, at one time, uh, was described by the editorial cartoonist at the masses as Dorothy Day would make a terrible communist because communists now were, uh, you know, were rising up. She'd make a terrible communist because she's always talking about God. Hmm. And people said, you know, she was always cornering them at a party and wanting to have a religious conversation. Eugene O'Neill actually welcomed this because he felt haunted by God. And uh, so they had a a friendship based on that uh, kind of uh, discourse. And so at a certain point, she had kind of a fatal attraction relationship with uh, one of the radical journalists and had an abortion at his uh, urging. And she it didn't go well. Um, this is actually Emma, Emma Goldman's boyfriend, the famous anarchist, Emma Goldman. It was her boyfriend that performed the abortion and she had a lot of complications and she felt, I'm never going to have children now. And when, um, she met the love of her life, Forster Batterham later in these circles, uh, she became pregnant and out of gratitude to God, she said, I'm going to join a church. And she looked around and she saw, where are the poor people? She asked herself, where are the poor people? And it was in the Catholic church. And that's how she became Catholic. And uh, she struggled for a while. And what do I do as a Catholic? Because she wasn't she wasn't meeting, maybe some of your listeners are like this. They, they don't meet people who are interested in social justice in their parish and uh, she wasn't hearing anything about social justice preached from the pulpit. And so she felt very lost in her faith. And she went to a, a march, uh, the Hunger March of 1932. And at that, after that march, she went to the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which was still being constructed. But she went into the basement and she prayed to uh, the Blessed Mother, uh, to intercede for her with with the Lord, to teach her a way to use her gifts for writing and to use her concern for workers and people living in poverty um, as part of her faith instead of as a sideline to her faith. And she got on a bus. She um, got into uh, back, back home in New York and she... Uh, was greeted by her sister-in-law who was living with her and, and her brother. And her sister-in-law said, there's this strange French man who wants to talk to you. And that was Peter Morin. And then sort of the rest is history. You know, they, they formed the, uh, the Catholic worker. Yeah. So, and tell us a little bit about the Catholic worker then. So she has this conversion, which I love that idea of she has this gift, she has this faith, she wants them integrated, right? As opposed to these kind of different spheres of her life. And I just find like that is such a a moving thing to think that we can, we figure out a way to use the gifts we have, even if they don't seem quote unquote religious, to be able to, to live out a calling from the Lord. So she has that moment and then she meets this guy. So tell us that, that part of the story, um, the next part. Yeah, it's really a, a vocational prayer, small v. Uh, you know, here I am, Lord. Right. And so she, she gets home and there's Peter Morin. And, and he says, I have to talk to you. Uh, both the editor of Commonweal Magazine and this red-haired Irish radical in Union Square tell me I need to talk to you. 
And so, you know, in a way he's kind of called by God, you know, hand of God, bringing him there. And he's a very eccentric guy. He just goes on and on and on trying to teach her. He's he's convinced that Dorothy knows her scriptures because, you know, she did have this Protestant kind of um, non-observant Protestant background, but she was curious about the Bible. She knew a little bit about the Bible. But then she um, didn't, Peter Moran pointed out, you don't know much about the lives of the saints. You don't know much about the teaching of the popes. I will be your teacher. Hmm. And he was very, you know, it, it, I mean, it's kind of, you, you look at it a certain way, it's kind of <laughs> condescending and weird and stuff. But that's what he felt his call was, to hmm. teach Dorothy about these aspects of the faith that she didn't know. So they began these almost tutoring sessions. And then at one point, Peter reveals the movement that he wants to start with Dorothy, which would compose of, uh, and, and people debate whether the newspaper was that prominent um, but it was something Dorothy knew how to do. You know, she came from a family of journalists and she had just worked on two important radical uh, publications. But he said, we need to start with houses of hospitality, which would be like the medieval church of offering hospitality to travelers. We need to have clarification of thought sessions where people can get together and debate issues, but listen to each other. And we need to start farms. We need to help people go back to the land because you you think this is 1932 when this conversation starts, a lot of unemployment. And Peter, one of Peter's catchphrases was, there is no unemployment on the land. Hmm. So that these farms could both provide employment and opportunities for people in the evenings to have clarification of thought and then they might be able to send food to the houses of hospitality, which would be more urban. Um, so that's how it started. And Dorothy took the newspaper idea and really ran with it. So it, the Catholic workers started as a publication, but they were putting out these ideas about these uh these these places that would be houses of hospitality. And so homeless people would start coming up to them saying, I read in the paper, you have these houses of hospitality. I need a place to stay. There was a woman who did that. And Dorothy, you know, she always quoted this, this um, she always quoted a scripture from James of saying, you know, you can't, you can't just say to somebody who's hungry, keep warm and well fed, you know, kind of good luck to you. Right. Uh, I'll pray for you. You need to respond as in Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me food. Uh, and for her, it was, I don't have a place to stay. And you say you run these houses of hospitality. So the first house of hospitality was really um, a room where they would um, lay out the paper. And a woman slept on a mattress on the floor. And that was the beginning. And then from that, they rented a place nearby. And then the houses began to really expand. People would people would move to other cities and start houses there. And so it became an, a national movement and very, very, very popular in the church until the Spanish-American War, when uh, Dorothy uh, pointed out that uh, Franco maybe wasn't a... Um, you know, a, a, a Catholic leader in the sense that the, you know, implementing church teaching uh, about peace and poverty and so forth. Yeah. So the Spanish Civil War is what 
is what you meant, right? Not the Spanish oh, yeah. American. Yeah. No, no. American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Civil War, exactly. Franco. So yeah, and that's another piece. Any of the any of the wars the U.S. found themselves in when she was around, she was uh, speaking out against. Um, yeah, sometimes was, opposing bishops. She was very much um, a um, committed to implementing the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, in some ways, some people have said she lived a life that one would lead if one took the gospel seriously. Hmm. That you know, thou shalt not kill. So, right, we should. Isn't that the? Uh, I think it's who is it? It was the Jesuit uh, Daniel Berrigan. I think talking at first said she lived as if the truth were true. Uh, mm. This is actually like this is real. Like we're not just, you know, it's not just something nice to say. Um, so yeah, we could go, we could have like a whole thing on like a lot about her and the movement. I, it's hard to even know where to go, but I am curious for you again, as someone who has been learning about her, you've been, you had a lot of conversations with people who knew her, who had worked with her. What again, and you had come in knowing about her certainly, but do you, is there anything, do you ever remember like a certain conversation or an email or something you learned about her that was like, wow, this is like really surprising. I didn't know this before. I can't wait to include this in all of the, uh, the testimony we're gathering up. Right, right. I think, I think the biggest thing I got out of this, Mike, is a deepening of her, her teaching, which was to really take the gospel seriously and to live a life as a peacemaker and as a um, as someone who um, is trying to I mean, what they called it was personalism, trying to relate to people living in poverty in a way that regards them as made in the image and likeness of God. And for me, as someone who had been a community organizer, who had worked on a lot of public policy around poverty, I thought I was that way. But what it, she does is she gets into your heart and starts to work inside you and makes you confront the fact that you're not, you're not living as a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you adopt that personalism. So I began, for me, to have uh, conversations with, you know, you have no no shortage of homeless people to talk to in New York City. So I uh, began to have conversations and ask people questions about their lives and that sort of thing. And it really it really changed how I how I related to them. So the impact of the the depth of her uh, thinking uh, was was really critical. And actually, my spiritual director, uh, he told me that he, I was sharing some of this with him, and he told me that there is a painting of Dorothy in his room, and every day he wakes up and he sees her and he thinks, there she is staring me down. <laughs> because she, she offers this life that you look at and say, wow, I really need to look at my own life. And so that's the most important thing. But I would say the things that I learned that people don't know um, I mentioned the sexual harassment incident. I find it's really interesting that no one has ever talked about this. There was a guy who was constantly chasing her on the call staff. And uh, a lot of people, I mean, you know, uh, Mike Gold, who was one of her best friends, he um, he was uh, ultimately like a columnist for the communist paper and, you know, pro Stalin and all that in the end. But at the time, he said, that guy's as crazy as a boiled owl. You know, which I don't know. 
I don't know exactly what that means. You know, these hundred year old expressions don't, don't stand up, but you know, she has a mentally ill person who's interested in her and who just won't stop. And so they had a, um, you can see this in reds, the movie reds. Uh, they had these balls to raise money for people who had been arrested for their pacifist beliefs. And at one of these balls, he comes up and tries to give her a hug and she just smacks him. Uh, this is before conversion, you know, and so uh, this act of violence, you know, she would not have had. Uh, so she smacks him and the editor says, you need to apologize to him, <laughs> you know. And so he's after her constantly and he won't listen to anything. She finally smacks him and there's no accountability for him. All the accountability is Dorothy's. So she leaves. Um, so for me, that was a was an interesting thing around um here's a woman in the workforce who's facing sexual harassment. Like it, it's uh, an untold part of her story. That's, that's really important for us to know about. Sure. So I, I want to get into this process a little bit more before we get too far for you to kind of take us through the, the process that you've been involved in. So you mentioned there had been this, this request and the Pope said, yeah, go ahead. So you can start this process uh, out of the New York archdiocese. You've been involved now for a while. So can you just tell me how you got involved and then what was the work that you were doing um, with the, for the, within the cause? Sure, sure. And the work in earnest really began when Cardinal Dolan came to the um, archdiocese. Uh, very little was done. You know, you know Cardinal, Cardinal O'Connor got permission to start this like as he was in his deathbed. So, you know, he wasn't able to do anything. Cardinal Egan was really dealing with so many financial issues that, you know, he didn't show much interest. But when Cardinal Dolan came, he was really fascinated by her story. He's a historian, you know, his doctorates in church history. So he, his dissertation was on the Catholic action movement was social justice movement back in the, you know, thirties, forties, fifties. So he was fascinated by her and um, really got behind for the first time financially to hire staff. And so what our charge was, was to collect evidence about whether she lived a life of heroic virtue. And for me, Mike, you asked earlier what surprised me. What surprised me was I didn't find anything really wrong with her. <laughs> you know, I mean, I came in it, you know, we take an oath to seek the truth, not to be boosters for a candidate. And I looked and looked and looked and uh, there really wasn't anything in her writing, in her life. Uh, she had a temper. She had sarcasm. And that's where that that famous quote, uh, Robert Ellsberg, who's edited her, her diaries and her letters, uh, is uh, always saying um, it's now her best known quote. Like nothing Dorothy said is as well known as don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. So she had a sarcastic streak. People, you know, back in the 30s when it was starting, people would ask her like, um, do you have visions? And she would say visions of unpaid bills. <laughs> so she had a sarcastic streak and she had a temper and all of that, you know, so that part of it humanizes her. But what really surprised me was that I never found anything that was really problematic, even in the freewheeling 60s and 70s. Um, nothing really, you know, she really led a, a holy life. So our job became collecting evidence of that in different categories. You know, one category is gathering testimony from 
people who knew her, who knew her personally, who worked with her, who can comment on key questions about the virtues. And we've managed to take testimony from about 35 people. And um, when um, we uh, collected all that over the months that followed, uh, five, six, seven of them died. So this is why it's so important to get those, those testimonies. And so we started with the testimonies and then we went into historical commission uh, we had a few historians and journalists who um, were very familiar with Dorothy Day, and they um, wrote a biography of her uh, that took into account um, what was happening in the world, what was happening in the church. And then we collected her publications and had what's called, you know, it's kind of a, it's a churchy word, uh, theological censors. Sounds kind of scary, but it's basically theologians who can judge, you know, is this, uh, you know, kosher theology? Is this is this uh, within the bounds of Catholic teaching? And uh, what is the um, what are the morals that are being talked about here? So the theological censors, two on each publication, weigh in. Now, here's where things get complicated. When you think seven years. This is what who I.F. Stone, who founded the nation, he described Dorothy as one of the great journalists of the 20th century. So one of the great journalists of the 20th century is up for canonization, and she has her own newspaper. So it's really never an unpublished thought. She's got her columns. And it's interesting to see kind of the hierarchy where, you know, the newspaper is where she puts all of her thoughts. And then the articles are where she takes kind of the best of those thoughts. And then the greatest hits go into the, the books. So she had kind of a hierarchy and then she was very shrewd. She had many reprints done in Catholic Digest. So she was able to both, you know, reach in her columns, the, uh, the true believers of the Catholic worker movement, but then she could reach the wider church through Catholic Digest. So these theologians went through, I forget the exact number, but uh, you know, it's, it's tens of thousands of pages of uh, books, of uh, articles, of uh, columns from the newspaper, editorials that she wrote, unsigned editorials, you know, because she was the publisher, um, all those things. So the theological censors weigh in on that. And then there's the unpublished documents. So her diaries, 10,000 pages in pretty bad handwriting had to be transcribed. I mean, anyone who tells you that, you know, back in the day, people had beautiful handwriting. I mean, maybe in the Civil War or something, but in uh, Dorothy's handwriting, just take a look at that and you'll disabuse yourself of that notion. Uh, we had... 105 transcribers from all around the world working remotely, transcribing her diaries, 10,000 wow. pages. Wow. Um, so all of those unpublished manuscripts, you know, she, she started a, um, a book about her relationship with Eugene O'Neill and she wrote five pages and that's it. But it's fantastic. It's like the best five page book you ever read. Those mm. kinds of things had to be, uh, included and sent to the Holy See. So when we got all done with everything, we had to send two copies to the Vatican. It weighed two thirds of a ton. 
of paper, mostly all paper? paper, all paper, all paper. Oh yeah. There, there are, uh, a couple of DVDs. Um, there, there's the entertaining angels movie, sure. uh, which is like a fictionalized, uh, Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, but polished, you know, so it's, it's in the, it's in the church and out of the church at the same time. And then two really good documentaries. And then we had like, uh, audio recording of Mike Wallace with a very hostile interview with her. And, you know, there, there's this, those were really treat. There was a, there was a documentary uh, done for, um, I don't know. It was, it was like a, a show that would have a, like a half hour focus. This is like back in the fifties, a uh, half hour focus on different interesting movements in the United States. And so that there was AV material, which the Vatican, because of Bishop Sheen's cause, they now allow audio. And it used to be, you had to just make a transcript uh, and scripts of plays about her icons. People have, have, have drawn, um, the halos are premature, but the, you know, the Vatican wants to look at them. You can't hang those up in a church because if they got halos, it's, it's premature, but there are some churches that have images of her. So we also sent in photographs of stained glass windows of holy men and women that would include mm. Dorothy. Are they curious about the current state of the Catholic worker movement? Did you have things about like how the legacy continues today? Exactly. Yeah. And so the a big part of it is the Catholic worker movement. Um, that is very important. But what needs to not be lost in that is that she was also a co-founder of Pax Christi USA, um, that the um, ideas of the Catholic worker also spun off uh, interesting movements, uh, land trusts, uh, are a big one where a nonprofit organization owns the land and then low-income people uh, own their homes on it. Uh, worker-owned businesses, which, you know, doesn't didn't originate with Dorothy and Peter, but they promoted that as this idea of, it was called distributism, where uh, it, it kind of takes a, a different look at capitalism than you normally see from radicals, where it's like capital is a good thing. It produces lots of wealth. The workers need to have more of that wealth and worker owned businesses is, is one of the ways in which that's done. So the legacy is an important part. We called uh, all of the known Catholic worker houses and we had an interview we did with them. They often specialize in different ministries. For example, in Europe, uh, the big focus is on refugees where, you know, like in New York, it might be just homeless people. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a Cleveland house that focused on, um, seriously ill children, mm-hmm. which got them into the healthcare, uh, ministry. Um, and I think too, an important part was, uh, we call reputation for holiness where we had to collect, for example, uh, time magazine back in, um, the 70s, early 70s, did a story on living saints. And guess who was on the cover? Mother Teresa. Um, and inside one of the, uh, maybe the uh, B-level living saints was uh, Dorothy, uh, which uh, that was during the period where she would, you know, yell at people, don't call me a saint. Because for her, the big problem was that lets, if you call her a saint, that kind of lets you off the hook. That's something for saints to do. 
And Dorothy just had no no patience with that. But one one of the interesting reputation for holiness, which I did not know of, even though I'm a comic book guy, you know that, um, Batman had a character based on Dorothy Day. And um, she was uh, introduced, you know, the, the kind of the plot part of it was that she had helped mentor Bruce Wayne when she was a young, when he was a young man and, and all of that. But what, what was interesting about it, when I interviewed the, uh, the creator, uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, the writer for Batman at that time, he said that he was writing this violent comic book and he was in the Catholic worker. And he felt like he needed to atone for that by having a voice for pacifism. So he huh. created this character who would, you know, she would berate Bruce about how violent he was. And he even, she even would, uh, I think this happened in the nineties with her character where she, she, she went after him for putting Robin in danger all the time, which I think any sensible reader of Batman and Robin would, uh, would uh, think that <laughs> so there's all of this stuff um i'm curious like did you get to like the diaries that you mentioned like did you get to hold any of the originals did you get to kind of see any of those those things again since she died 40 years ago like there's still stuff like this original stuff oh sure yeah it's uh pdfs i mean the the, the originals mm. are at the um the Dorothy Day archives at Marquette University, which if any of your listeners are ever at Marquette, it's a great, it's a great little field trip uh, to, uh, to go there and just kind of look at what they have and then request it. Uh, they mm -hmm. have her, her prison smock, you know, with a, her and her last prison stay in 1973, she really reached out to the women in the detention center. And uh, mm -hmm. she um, was g given a signed copy of her prison dress uh, by all of the inmates and she just like would wear it around the house doing you know stuff you do around the, around the house uh, you know with all these signatures and notes to her and stuff so she uh, she definitely took um, she took that very seriously the the conditions of women in prison hmm. so you gather up these 1200 pounds of things as you've been describing and then there was kind of a mass where they were blessed so yeah just let's put an end to the, this part of the story here uh, what so what was the what was the last thing you had to do sure and and here's where you you often uh, there's often this experience when when you're uh, you know when you're really churchy you know working in the church you hear words and phrases that you realize oh these were originally churchy words and now they're you know, now they mean something else. And um, the, the phrase was red tape, that uh, we boxed all these things in, you know, nice boxes and wrapped them up in red tape. And then Cardinal Dolan sealed them uh, with a special seal in w wax to mm -hmm. make sure that they weren't opened because they'll be sent to the Holy See and um, and then opened. And if they see that anything has been opened, you know, that's a red alert that things have been tampered with. Maybe somebody took the, uh, you know, took a testimony out where Dorothy Day beat up one of the homeless people or, you know, or whatever, you know, that that's I mean, one of the reasons the the, the people who give testimony, uh, I can't share with you any of their names. They're not supposed to talk about it is to protect them uh, that you you know, when, when we ask for this kind of candor, you know, we, you know, tell negative things as well as positive things. 
Um, so there's a there's an oath of secrecy with that, which, you know, people's ears prick up when they hear, you know, vow of secrecy and and all that. But it's really to protect the uh, protect the uh, the innocent, you know, the uh, the people giving the tense testimony. But Cardinal Dolan, you know, put those seals on during a mass and um, we all took oaths to conclude the um conclude the inquiry where, you know, the people who've been working all along, you know, we took an oath to be open-minded, to be uh, seeking of the truth rather than any particular end point. And at the end, we're asked, did you do that? Did you tell the truth? Did you, did you hide anything? You know, did you find something in her diaries where she's, you know, she cursed the Blessed Mother or something like that. And no, there was nothing like that. In fact, they were incredibly boring. Um, if you read the um, if you read the published diaries, it's 500 pages that are the greatest hits from the 10,000 pages. So a lot of it is like what the weather is that day. I mean, I think she grew up in a, in a time when if people kept diaries, they talked about the weather at the beginning. Cause I just, he's like, why is she always talking about the weather? <laughs> so that's, so how, like literally how does that stuff get, is it sent? It's not sent by UPS or something. Well, actually DHL is a, is a, a carrier that's very respected in international delivery and our postulator you know, said that like first they told us that it would be sent through the diplomatic pouch from D.C. So the idea was we would take the evidence down to D.C. And I don't know if this diplomatic pouch is like something from Harry Potter where you just keep putting stuff in it or if it was a metaphor. And it got to the point where, you know, you're talking about bringing two thirds of a ton of dog and advice from our postulator is it's really going to annoy them if we do that. So, you know, let's send it right to the congregation for the causes of saints. He said, I use DHL. He's uh, a Dutch man who lives in Rome working on canonization causes all over the world. So he's working on a, a cause in Rwanda right now, and they just finished the inquiry and they use DHL. So we said, okay, we'll use DHL. And so now we're sorting through, you know, at the diocese, you can imagine with COVID and, and all, um, and also, you know, trying to see, is there a DHL account, you know, cause we have to do things as part of a larger institution, but, uh, they'll get there shortly. Um, but, um, a tracking number, <laughs> you have a tracking number, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, I think that's why Valdry, uh, steered us to DHL because he's had no problems with with them. I mean, at one time I thought, well, you know, I looked on the American Airlines website and they have a thing where you could send freight with them. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool to like ride in the passenger and along with it? But there's you know, it doesn't work like that. So yeah. so we're going with his advice. I imagine along with learning a lot about Dorothy and her legacy, you learned a lot about the church and how the church works. Were there anything like kind of getting behind the scenes this way? Uh, in this process that you're like, oh, I didn't realize that this step in the process was part of making a saint. Yeah, two things, Mike. Um, one is the length of time it takes. I mean, you hear it takes a long time to make a saint and all, but, but when you get down to it, it's a legal process. It's not a paper. It's a trial. So what we're doing is collecting evidence 
that goes into this trial. I mean, they call it a tribunal, but it's it's really a trial. And so instead of is she innocent, is she guilty? The question is, um, did she live a life of heroic virtue? And later on, you know, when in miracles are investigated, there'll be what what's actually called a miracle trial um, where there's, you know, arguments for and against. And so I found a lot of the just to be we, we can be candid here. Right, Mike? Oh, sure. Just between us. Uh, <laughs> I found a lot of the kind of the legal rules to be quite onerous and unnecessary. You know, for, for example, there's a. Um, there's a requirement that everything is done on single-sided paper. Well, we found out after we had copied a whole bunch of publications double-sided because, you know, Laudato Si, Pope Francis would want us to do double-sided, that no, it's got to be single-sided. And not only that, there are these margins that are really skewed to the right because the binder they use at the Congregation for the Cause of Saints, because all, all this evidence gets turned into books in a way. They're bound, mm -hmm. hardcover books. And the binder they use uh, has a tight binding, so you got to move things to the right so, so words don't get caught in the gutter. You know, imagine evidence, you know, being just caught because they had a tight binding. You know, my thought was, why don't you get another binder? <laughs> it's just they set these rules at the congregation and we follow them because sure. otherwise it just gets sent back saying, you know, when you have this in a proper format, give it to us. So I spent the first three years of this being really angry about that. Hmm. And then I started thinking, you know, that this is like my, my philosophy training with uh, Michel Foucault of, um, you know, stop looking at what institutions don't do and look at what they do do. Like, what are these crazy rules doing? They're slowing it down. And the idea is to give, I think, I infer, that is to have enough time that you can turn over all the rocks and the church doesn't regret doing that. You know, I mean, we, we saw this with the, the Bishop Sheen cause. All of a sudden, it was suspended. And, uh, you know, what, what I have gathered is that, like a lot of, when he was Bishop of Rochester, like a lot of bishops, he moved guys around who were abusing children. And so you look at that question, did he live a life of heroic virtue? There may be a time when people say yes, but at this time, the church is hitting the pause button. And with Dorothy's life, uh, there were a lot of questions that, you know, the whole, you know, she was a communist, you know, business. Um, yeah, she was, but when she found Jesus Christ, she wasn't. Um, but the, those kinds of things persist. And so slowing it down, so you take seven years closely looking at someone's life is worthwhile. So in the end, I think it's a good thing. Hmm. So what what's next for you? Um, I imagine after that kind of relationship, uh, that experience in with her thinking, with her people she knew, with the writing, it's kind of hard just to say, all right, I'm, I'm moving on and... Uh, you have like this friend, I imagine, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, so what's next for right. you? I think you're right. It's like having a spiritual friend. Um, it's like having your own uh, Catholic Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, <laughs> who's whispering in your ear all the time. Uh, the way I think any of us, if we go deep into somebody's life, you know, whether it's through a, a relationship 
or through a relationship that we have through books, uh, but meeting the people that she knew and reading, I think has changed how I relate to people. I've really made a, a point at praying that I may become more of a personalist, that I may relate to people in my life more as human to human, um, because guess what? I haven't been, you know? So that's a big part. And then just what a fascinating life that was. What a fascinating life she had. And so I'm working on a, a graphic, I mean, you know, I'm a comics guy. I'm working on a graphic biography with a wonderful artist named Christopher Cardinale, who, um, you know, I, I got referred to friend of a friend, but I learned that he had a real interest in uh, the, uh, sign painting in the 1930s and things. So he has a real historical interest in the period of uh, the origin story, if you will, of, of Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement. So for me, I'm taking a lot of what I learned into that and some of those historical details that I learned that just are not in the biographies, just because the biographers didn't know about them. Um, and uh, for the cause, I'm going to stay on for another year and work on mentoring a successor. Uh, her name is Molly Swayze. She's a Fordham uh, graduate student in theology, and she um, has a real knack for detail and also loves Dorothy and wants to write about Dorothy. And so I've just been teaching her the ropes of how all this this works, because this is a this is a part of church life that you, you don't get from going to mass. You don't get from being part of Catholic charities, you, you get from, I mean, I thank God for this training I had in uh, canon law. I got a certificate in canon law from St. Mary's in uh, Winona um, because as you, as you know, Mike, I was working on parish mergers and I was so afraid I would mess one of them up that I got a certificate in canon law. So this has been really great for me this last seven years, but I will be moving on, but not without, you know, kind of helping out my successor. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking us uh, inside this process. It's been just totally fascinating to, to learn about that and to learn about how she's affected your life and your own uh, spiritual journey. And I do think that's one thing about her is that um, to kind of get to know her and to spend time with her doesn't, you can't just kind of go back to living your life as you always have been. Like there's a real challenge in her witness. So, and what are, are you doing? It echoes the, those questions from um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. What have you done for Christ? What are you doing for Christ? What ought I do to, for Christ? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And really puts that in uh, right for us and a real challenge in terms of her, uh, of her witness. And, but uh, just, yeah, well, so what do we do? Do we keep, do we pray for the cause? Like what, what can we do? Gonna, to I was going to say, Mike, uh, that I would like to give your listeners some homework. Okay, please. Uh, please pray to Dorothy for your needs. And you might be the recipient of miracle hmm. and that will help help her um, advance her cause to beatification and then to canonization. And just one tip, don't pray to Dorothy and other people too. Uh, we've already had something that is definitely a miracle. And the person said, well, you know, I prayed to Dorothy. I also prayed to Thea Bowman. Uh, so, oh, you know, you, in a miracle trial, you can't prove which saint did it. Oh, um, they can't do like a two for one. They can't use that in both absolutely. trials. Absolutely. No, no uh. twofers. And uh, Sister Thea Bowman is certainly a holy person who is interceding, I believe, on 
on the part of us with uh, with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but we 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 can't use that in a miracle trial. So sure. pray to Dorothy for your needs. So we can do that individually, but that's not something since she isn't canonized yet, like that we wouldn't do like in a formal litany of saints or something at like right. in a church. Right, exactly. And you know, it, and back to the the churchy words that are now different in in um, in our society. Uh, what you're talking about is called public cult. That if if there is a parish that prays to Dorothy, it's illegal hmm. um, because that is public cult. She needs to be at least venerable uh, before that happens. Um, venerable, worthy of being venerated, not old. Right. But the, but the word cult, private cult is encouraged, hmm. which is, you know, if you think of Oscar Romero, you know, immediately after his death, people were praying to him. I mean, the church wasn't, you know, right. mass, but the people were. Hmm. And those miracles led to him being canonized. Hmm. Well, so we have some homework, learned a huge amount today. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much again for taking the time and, and good luck in uh, whatever exciting project you find yourself in next. Hopefully less paperwork. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>